Exodus 20 sees God begin to give what is known as the law to his people, the Israelites. The most famous part of the law is undoubtedly the Ten Commandments, but the law in totality is far more extensive and detailed, covering practically every aspect of relational, civic, and religious life. What is widely referred to as the law can be divided into two sections, the law of God and the law of Moses. They are both different and distinct, even though we will see both given here at Mount Sinai, beginning in Exodus chapter 20. Jesus referred to the law of Moses when he was discussing the issues of circumcision and the Sabbath in John chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul refers to the law of God. They are completely different things, and I'm going to explain it a little bit further. This is your first fill-in. The law of God is for all peoples at all times. The law of God is for all peoples at all times. It consists of moral laws. The Ten Commandments given in this very chapter, they are moral laws, so they are therefore timeless. They still apply to us today. The law of Moses is for the Jewish people. It's for the nation of Israel. It consists of civil and ceremonial laws. The civil laws, which were for governing Hebrew society, can be found in Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23. The ceremonial laws, which deal with religious life, can be found in a small part of Exodus, but most notably consuming almost the entirety of the book of Leviticus. The law of Moses, you got to get this, is not for the church. This was the crux of the issue at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where they confronted the question, do Christians need to be circumcised? And they settled on the answer, no, because the law of Moses is for the Jews and for Israel. It is not for the church. So when you hear things like people say, well, you Christians, you want to believe in the Ten Commandments, but you still wear clothing that is made of mixed materials. Of course we do, because the Ten Commandments are the law of God. They are moral laws. They are for all people at all times. While wearing clothing made of mixed materials is a ceremonial law. It is for the Jewish people. It is for Israel. It's never applied to the church. The law is something every Christian needs to understand. It is vital to understanding the gospel because the law explains why Jesus did what he did for you and I on the cross. At the end of every person's earthly life, they face a reckoning. They face a judgment as they stand before God and give an account for their lives. Most people who have any type of spiritual belief system actually believe in something similar. While the specifics may vary, the core idea that after death we will answer for how we lived our lives is one that resonates with most people because it gives eternal significance to how we live our lives. It makes our lives matter and it provides a measure of relief to our desire for justice. We find comfort in the idea that those who live wickedly in this life will experience justice in whatever comes after this life. The problem is that most of us make completely baseless assumptions about how all of this will go down. Let me explain. Firstly, 
we assume that we will be judged in comparison to other people. Write that down. We assume that we will be judged in comparison to other people. We feel confident about standing before God after we die because we believe that we are kinder, more generous, and more ethical than many people. Whatever the pass mark is, whatever the cutoff point is, we're confident that we're above it. And we can all think of multiple people that we can point to and say, well, I was a better person than they were. I was way better than him, way better than her. Our first assumption is that we will be judged in comparison to other people. Our second assumption, write this down too, is that we will be the judge. Our second assumption is that we will be the judge. And we prove that we believe this by building our lives upon a belief system that seems good to us. The overwhelming majority of people do not form their worldview and their spiritual beliefs by asking the question, what is the truth? Most people ask the question, what beliefs allow me to feel good about myself while not interfering with the way I'd like to live my life? In other words, what works for me? That approach only makes sense if you are the one who's going to judge your life when it's over. The Bible and the law that God gave his people reveal something very, very different. You see, we are not going to be judged in comparison to other people. They are not going to be the standard. Do you know who the standard is going to be? God. God's going to be the standard. And do you know who the judge is going to be? Not you. Not me, the judge is going to be God, the one who created us and is therefore qualified to judge us. God will be the judge, God will be the standard, and his standard is, his standard is perfection. Perfection. But Jeff, come on, I mean, I mean, come on, that's not fair. How can God judge us by a standard as impossible as perfection? That's ludicrous. Well, firstly, God created us in such a way that we could have easily met the standard of perfection. He created Adam and Eve perfect, without sin. They didn't even have a desire to sin. And all they had to do to stay that way was demonstrate their faith in the goodness of God by obeying his commands, which were simple. They were easy. They were almost non-existent. Did they do it? Well, you know the story. They rejected God. They sinned against him and gave up their perfection in order to be their own gods. It is fair for God to judge us by the standard of perfection because that's the way he made us in the beginning. Make a note of this. God gave humanity everything needed to meet his standard. God gave humanity everything needed to meet his standard. Secondly, whether we realize it or not, we all understand that justice is a necessary expression of love. Imagine a serial killer in court. The evidence against him is, is overwhelming. The families of the victims have filled the courtroom beyond capacity and their, their weeping is audible. Now imagine it comes time for the sentencing and the judge says, you know, the evidence is, it's overwhelming. Everybody knows you committed these heinous crimes, but here's the thing. I believe in love. So I forgive you. You're free to go. Love wins. Would any of us call that love? 
Of course not. Of course not. Why? Because real love involves justice. True love doesn't just wish things were right. It actively works to make them right by force if necessary. And how do we determine what justice should look like? How do we determine the standards of our justice system? Think about this. In our society, we base our justice system, we base them on our own collective moral standards. Here's what I mean. We get together as a society and we agree, you know, murder is wrong. And why do we say that? Because we get together and we agree that it's reasonable to expect us to not be able to murder each other. We think that we can live up to that standard, so we say it's wrong to murder. But guess what we don't do? We don't say it's wrong to gossip. Why? Because we know we can't live up to that standard. We know that we can't keep that up. So we say, you know what? We're not going to make it illegal to gossip. And here's my point. We base our justice system, we base our laws, we base our punishments on the moral values that we believe we can live up to as a society, the moral values that are reasonable based upon our own level of morality. And we have every right to do that. But so does God. So does God. And that's exactly what he's done. He will judge us based upon his level of moral excellence, the level of morality that he can live up to. The problem for us is that God's morality is perfect. He lives up to the standard of perfection and therefore he's entitled to hold it as the standard. Write this down. God has a right to execute justice based on his moral standards just as we do, just as we do. The law reveals what it looks like for a person to live by God's standards throughout their earthly life. Let me say that again. The law reveals what it looks like for a person to live by God's standards throughout their earthly life. When we talk about the word good, or we talk about a good person, we really mean good compared to other people. But God, our creator says, people are not the standard of what is good. I am. I'm the standard of what is good. For anyone who says, I'm a good person, And anyone who says, I'm going to do my best to live a good life, and then everything will work out whatever happens after I die. Here it is in black and white, the definition of good. The only definition of good that matters in eternity. This is what you need to live up to in order to hear God, the one who's going to judge you, call you good when your earthly life is over. It's all here in God's law, how to have good relationships, a blessed marriage, a safe society, a country with no prisons, a perfect relationship with God, a successful yet ethical business. It's all here. All you have to do is do it. All you have to do is do it. If you believe that all you need to live a perfect life is the right information, the right instruction, the right insight, here it is. It's coming up in these next few chapters of the book of Exodus. And I need to tell you, we're going to be here in Exodus 20 for a while. We're not going to rush through this stuff because it is essential knowledge for the Christian. What do you mean, Jeff? Like three weeks? Could be. Six weeks? It's possible. Ten weeks? See what the Lord wants to do. We're going to be here a while, so get comfortable. 
Now let's start by taking a quick walk through the text, and we're going to be coming back to this in coming weeks, and I'll just briefly explain as we go. We're going to walk through verse by verse over the coming weeks in all likelihood in the, in the coming months, as I said. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So God begins... He opens here before he gives any of his law. He begins by stating his right to claim ownership of the people of Israel, his right to be their God, his right to give them his law. And do you see what his claim is based upon? It's based upon redemption. He says, I am the one who redeemed you, who saved you, and who set you free. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And this is so important because it perfectly models our own salvation. Far too many people believe that they can be saved and they can go to heaven without accepting Jesus as their Lord, without accepting him as their master. But throughout the book of Exodus, the model of salvation presented shows God redeeming his people so that they can be his people and he can be their God. That's the deal. It's not God redeeming people so that they can be free to serve themselves and be their own gods. The deal is Jesus as redeemer and Lord. That is why the apostle Paul writes things in the New Testament like, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And this is the big part. You are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. Why? What's the basis for that comment? Paul goes on and he says, for you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. His claim upon us is based on the price he paid for us with his blood and his body. Please understand me. I I am not talking about living a perfect life. Nobody can do that. I'm talking about understanding. I'm talking about agreeing with. I'm talking about embracing the reality that Jesus owns us. He is the one who sits on the throne of our lives. He is God over our lives. If you are not on board with that, if you do not agree with and embrace that reality, there is not another version of Christianity where you can receive salvation while rejecting the lordship of Jesus in your life. And if that's where you are, you are not saved. You are not saved. Please understand me. I love you too much to let you go to hell because you've placed your faith in a false gospel that cannot save you. Again, I'm not talking about perfection. I mess up every single day. I sin many times every day. But in my heart and in my mind, I welcome the rule and reign of Jesus in my life. And I can't wait until the day he gives me a body that won't resist his rule and reign over my life. Let me put it another way. The only Jesus who can save you is King Jesus. We're saved because of Jesus the Lamb who died in our place. But the Jesus we welcome into our lives is the resurrected, glorified King Jesus. He is not coming into our lives to be mistreated and abused as the Lamb all over again. He is coming into our lives to reign, to rule. And I'll also share this. The Lord has a second claim on each of us. He created us. He created us. As the one who made us, he has every right to claim ownership of us. And yet, 
he allows us to choose because his goal is not to be a slave owner, but to be a father of children adopted into his family. His goal is a love relationship and love requires free will. So God gives us sovereignty, the ability to choose whether or not we will welcome his rule and reign in our lives. Make a note of this on your outline. God can rightfully claim ownership of our lives because he created us and redeemed us. God can rightfully claim ownership of our lives because he created us and redeemed us. Now, The list of the 10 commandments begins, and I want to ask you to evaluate yourself as we go through them. How have you done over the course of your life? How are you doing now? Let's take a fun Facebook quiz titled, How Much of the Law of God Have You Broken? There'll be a fun graphic generated at the end that you can share with friends. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. There's one throne in each of our lives. There's one king in our lives that everything else bows down to. There's one thing that has first priority. And God says very simply, that throne belongs to me. Everything else in your life is to bow down to me because I am to be your king and your first priority. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, which means nor worship them. The idea is that God is spiritual, and so there's there's nothing that could be created physically to adequately represent him. He was to stay other in the view of the people. He was not to be reduced into some physical form created by those he had created. Because inevitably, The creator is greater than the creation. So it's not appropriate for those God created to create an image of him and claim it as a representation of him. The Lord continues speaking and he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You got to understand this because people get into some weird stuff with this and get some weird misconceptions. God is not jealous of us. He's not jealous of us. He doesn't need anything we have. He's jealous for us. He created us for a purpose. He created us to know him. He created us to be fulfilled in him and it grieves him to see us settle for less. He is jealous for us, for our good. Now, some people read this. I've been doing this for the last few decades, and and they come up with this idea of of, of sort of generational curses, that perhaps you are going to be drawn to, let's say, the occult, because your great-grandmother was a witch, or something like that, and then your whole family line is essentially cursed. While it's true that our family does have an impact on us, our upbringing has an impact on us, I don't believe that this is what this passage is talking about. And I'll tell you why. Because generational curses don't come up in the Gospels anywhere. Jesus never talks about them. He never deals with anyone and says, oh, you have a generational curse. I'm going to lift it. I'm going to heal you from that. Generational curses don't come up in the early church, in the book of Acts. They don't come up in any of the New Testament writings at all. But the ultimate evidence that we would be misinterpreting this text in Exodus 20 
by claiming it's talking about generational curses. The ultimate evidence against that interpretation is found in Ezekiel chapter 18. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea is that even thousands of years ago, people were blaming their problems on their parents. Even thousands of years ago, people were saying, listen, my therapist says the reason I messed up is because my dad didn't throw a football enough with me when I was a kid, and that's why I can't find a wife. It's my dad's fault. But what does God say? Continuing in Ezekiel, take a note of this. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. So don't use any proverb that talks about the kids being punished because of the parents' actions. The Lord says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. So this verse in Exodus 20 is telling us that our actions do have an effect on our children and our family. They either make following God or following the flesh easier or more difficult. But they're not talking about generational curses in the way that some talk about them. God says, listen, anyone who loves me, I will love him. Anyone who hates me, he'll be judged on his own. So don't use Proverbs that talk about the children being punished for the father's actions. But there's even more to this because the Lord tells us he's a jealous God for his children. So then just think about it. If he's jealous for his children, why would he want to destroy them? Why would that make any sense? It doesn't because God doesn't deal with people that way. The text says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, the original Hebrew word that's translated visiting in our Bibles is also translated punishing in some Bibles. But the gist of the word, if you look it up, say in Strong's Bible Dictionary or something like that, you'll find that it's more in line with the idea of corrective visitation, attending to or visiting with someone in order to correct their behavior. And so I want to suggest to you, you think about it, you pray about it, you come to your own conclusions. I want to suggest to you that the verse is saying that God will discipline the children of those who hate him. In other words, he will visit them. He will call them to repentance. And Paul wrote about this aspect of God the Father in Hebrews 12 when he said, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So Paul says, listen, God disciplines those that he loves. And I believe that's what we're talking about here in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 7 the Lord says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we've mentioned this before. I don't think this verse is talking about swearing or cussing, as some of our American friends would say. It's about identifying oneself as a follower of God. In our age, taking the title Christian, the literal name of Christ, Christian, but having it mean nothing, living your life as though bearing the name of God means nothing. You are taking the Lord's name 
but in vain. You're misrepresenting him. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. Underline that, do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath is about rest. It's about rest. It is a command. It is a gift from God and we need it. We need it. It gives us space in our lives to recharge, to be refreshed, to connect with our families, and most importantly, to connect with the Lord. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's the only command famously that comes with a promise, long life for those who honor their fathers and mothers. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Pretty straightforward. And that includes yourself, by the way. It includes suicide. The idea is we don't have the authority to take life, the life of another or the life of ourselves through the act of murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Straightforward. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Straightforward again. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This refers to passing on information about a person to another person when you're not sure that the information you're passing on is accurate. The command also includes indulging this behavior from others, providing a receptive ear for gossip. That's what this is talking about too. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Every person is meant to be content with what they have because it's what the Lord has allowed them to have. If they're not content, they're to seek the Lord, not to allow jealousy and lust and covetousness to grow in their heart. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I asked you to evaluate yourself both now and over the course of your life. How'd you do? How'd you do? Perhaps like many, you felt that you were guilty of maybe one or two. Perhaps you realized, well, you know, I've gossiped once or twice. I've been jealous of something or somebody, something somebody else had. But you know what, Jeff? Eight out of ten ain't bad. Eight out of ten is not bad. And, and you're right. It's not bad compared to other people. But remember, we're going to be compared to God. And if you've broken one of the Ten Commandments ever, you have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. You cannot join him in heaven when your earthly life is over. Your future is an eternity separated from God. The only source in existence of anything and everything good. Eternal separation from God means eternal separation from anything and everything good. But wait, there's more. On the off chance you think you haven't broken any of the Ten Commandments, just wait until Jesus explains the Ten Commandments to you. Because when Jesus comes to the earth and begins his ministry, he delivers a famous teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, in which he explains what God's law is really all about. In Matthew 5, Jesus says things like, you have heard it said, 
In ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head, shall be in danger of the council. You have heard that it was said in ancient times, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, listen, listen, you guys have thought for centuries that God's law was all about your external actions, what you did on the outside. But it goes way, way deeper than that. It goes all the way to the heart. And from God's perspective, from God's standard of perfection, having a hateful thought in your heart is as bad as murder. From God's perspective, having a lustful thought is as bad as adultery. Jesus says this as he looks at those who think they're actually fulfilling the law. They actually think they're living by the law. And he says, essentially, now that I've explained it to you, let me ask you again. Do you keep the law of God? Do you? And at this point, only a delusional fool would claim to be able to keep the law of God. So write this down. Jesus explained that the law of God extends all the way to our thoughts and motives. The law of God extends all the way to our thoughts and motives. And I want to encourage you to go and listen to a Bible study we've done previously on Matthew 5, on that whole section where Jesus talks about it. We get into more detail and I've put the link to that on your outline. I want to make sure we're connecting the dots here. When you've heard Jesus explain the Ten Commandments, as I said, it should be obvious. No one can keep God's law to his standard of perfection. Everyone has failed to keep it. Are you connecting the dots? Anyone whose plan it is to stand before God and say, I'm a good person, is doomed. The Apostle Paul said it plainly. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And earlier in that same chapter of Romans 3, Paul writes, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Would you write this down on your outline? Undeniably, no man can keep God's law perfectly. Undeniably, no man can keep God's law perfectly. And this leads now to an obvious question. If nobody keeps the law, if nobody can keep the law, then, then what is the law for? Why was it given? The basis of bankruptcy court is the confession of a man or a woman that they have a debt they cannot pay. There's relief available, but in order for that relief to be accessed, they must first acknowledge their unpayable debt. When God wanted us to understand what the law was for, he used a man who for most of his life seemed to be nailing it. He seemed to be actually doing it, keeping every little aspect of the law zealously. I'm speaking of the apostle Paul. And Paul's masterpiece on the purpose of the law and its place in the Christian's life is his letter to the Galatians, which we studied relatively recently. And if you weren't with us for that study, 
let me encourage you to go listen and go through that whole study. It'll be a perfect partner study to our journey through Exodus at this time. And I especially put a link to one specific message which addresses this question in detail. What is the law for? But for example, in Galatians 3, Paul tells us this. The scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And now it all begins to make sense. The law was given to make it crystal clear to each of us that we all fall short of God's standard. We have accrued a debt we cannot repay. We are in a hopeless situation. Make a note of this. The law prepares us for the gospel by laying bare our hopeless sin condition. The law prepares us for the gospel by laying bare our hopeless sin condition. And when the law has opened our eyes to that reality, we are primed to receive the good news of the gospel, which is this, Jesus has paid our debt. The gospel is only good news if you understand the bad news. The relief of bankruptcy court is only good news if you're willing to admit and see the truth that you have a debt you cannot pay. And that is why we're going to camp here on the subject of the law for a while. I know that most churches would not spend several weeks explaining to their congregation why they're not good people in detail. But the more we understand this, the more we will appreciate the fact that Jesus has taken off our filthy rags, our feeble attempts to be good people, and he has clothed us in his righteousness. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are holy, righteous, blameless, and have fulfilled the law perfectly. How's that possible? Because Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. And his blood covers every sin you've committed, every sin you're committing, and every sin you will commit. The blood of Jesus makes us righteous, and through the blood of Jesus, we are kept righteous. And the more we dig into the subject of the law of God, the more amazed we're going to be at what Jesus has done for us. And that's a worthwhile study. I hope you'll come with me on this journey. It's going to grow and deepen your faith in a significant, significant way. Let's hop back into Exodus 20 and, and finish out the chapter. Verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. I would have done the same thing. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. The Israelites were saying, we need a mediator. Moses, mediate for us. You be the bridge between God and us because we're sure we will die if we're confronted with the presence of God. Moses here is a picture of Jesus, our mediator. The one the Bible says is the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. But the difference is that Jesus changes us, robes us in his righteousness so that we can join him in the presence of God. Verse 20, and Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you 
and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. I like that. I like that. We know that the Bible says repeatedly that a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here we see why that's true. A right fear of the Lord produces obedience to the Lord. A right fear of the Lord produces obedience to the Lord so that you may not sin. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name or in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. This is interesting. In the very same chapter where God's law is given, a path to right relationship with God, how to meet the standards of God, we also find God immediately giving instructions on how to build an altar. An altar for what? Sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifices and offerings for what? For sin. For sin. God gives the law and then he immediately gives instructions on building an altar. In other words, here's the law. You're not going to be able to keep it. So here are some instructions on how to build an altar where you can make sacrifices and offerings for your inevitable sins. These sacrifices and offerings obviously would not actually pay for sin. Rather, they pointed ahead to the one who would be the final payment for all sins, Jesus, even if the people didn't understand that yet. How can an animal sacrifice, though, have, have anything to do with making a person right with God? In the same way that a piece of paper can turn someone into a billionaire. The paper is worthless, but what it represents could be priceless. And in this instance, it was all pointing ahead to Jesus. And they were making these offerings in faith, believing that God would make a way for their sins to be forgiven. Now, have you ever noticed that throughout the Old Testament, when God instructs his people to build an altar, he always says, hey, build it out of earth, build it out of dirt, or, or build it out of rocks that have not been hewn. They haven't been cut by a tool by the hands of man. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God wants his altar to be a place where we approach him in faith, not confident in our works. And if we could, we would build these great spectacular altars with, with, with these really, really high steps. And we would approach those steps and those altars in confidence because we would say, look how great this altar is that I've made. Look how amazing the structure is which we've made with our hands. Surely God will be impressed with me. And we would approach God on the confidence we have in our works. God says, I don't want it to be that way because, because here's the truth. You think about what they wore at that time. God literally says, when you climb up steps, all that's happening is you're just exposing your nakedness to everyone else who's below. So you think you're doing this spectacular work. Oh, God's going to be so impressed. And he says, listen, anytime you try to approach me on the basis of your works, you're just revealing your nakedness. That's not how I want you to approach me. I want you to approach me in faith, in faith for what I will do, not what you will do, not what you will do. 
It all points to Jesus and our salvation. You might recall King Nebuchadnezzar's vision from chapter two of Daniel, where Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, you watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And those who went through that study will recall that stone, that stone cut without hands was Jesus. It was Jesus. Both Psalm 118 and Isaiah 53 speak prophetically of the humility of the form that Jesus would take in his incarnation. He didn't come looking spectacular. He came in humble form so that man would approach God in faith. In Psalm 118, 22, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Speaking of Jesus as a stone saying the one that was rejected has become the foundation of the whole building, the foundation of the church. In Isaiah 53, it tells us this about Jesus when he came to the earth. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus came as a man, he wasn't unbelievably good looking. There was nothing spectacular about his appearance. He was in a humble form. It's always been about faith and not the works of man. It's not about the outward external stuff. It's about the heart. And it still is. It still is. Let me ask you as we wrap up, are you buying into a lie about your works? Are you buying into the lie that God loves you less when you're not doing well in your life? When it seems like you're not really doing a good job of works of righteousness? Are you buying into the lie that God loves you less? Are you buying into the lie that God loves you more because you think you're doing a good job? of keeping his law? Are you believing, man, I've been on a good run lately. I bet, I bet God's really impressed. Are you buying into that lie? Listen, God loves you because you're his child. He loves you because you're his child. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in your place so that your performance, your works, would not have any impact on your relationship with God your familial relationship with God. You're his kid, no matter what. Yes, we seek to obey the law of God, absolutely, but not because we're trying to earn salvation, not because we're trying to earn God's love, but because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us and gave his life for us while we were yet sinners. While we were standing in the courtroom declaring, I have a debt I cannot pay. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Jesus stepped in and said, I've paid your debt in full. I've taken care of it. That's why we love him. That is why we seek to obey him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let me pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Jesus, thank you for coming and living and dying and rising from the grave in our place so that we could be clothed with your righteousness. Father, thank you for adopting us into your family as daughters and sons. And Lord, we just want to repent for any time that we have believed that you love us less or love us more because of our works. We understand that you love us because of what Jesus has done. So thank you for removing our works from the equation. Father, I pray for the one who struggles to believe this, that you will just give them the ability to understand this and take this in and be blessed and touched by it in a way they never have before. Let this become real to them right now. And Father, help us not to return to the lie 
that we are saved or loved more or less by you because of our works. It's Jesus who brings us in. It's Jesus who keeps us and it's Jesus who will see us home. Thank you, Lord. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now. Because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.